Hey friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. All right, so if you guys weren't here a couple weeks ago, the last time I preached, I did a sermon series, or I mean, excuse me, I did a sermon on discipleship. Um, And this is really what I'm calling part two. And so if you weren't here, just real quick recap. The way I define discipleship for us is I said it's asking and answering really good questions. It's asking and answering who is God, who am I, who are others, and how do those things relate? And I I would encourage you to go back and listen because it's a a definition that we're going to keep returning to. Um, But when I knew Martin was going to be out of town this week, I decided, you know, I think I want to do a part two on that. And what today is, it's really me double-clicking on the question, who am I? And you may have just heard in that song that we sing, I am who you say I am. Like, this is going to be a theme uh, that we talk about today. And so what I want to do is I want to help us better answer the question, who am I? Who are you? I think this is an incredibly important question for all people to ask and answer, but I think it's incredibly important for Christians who hope to be discipled and discipling others to ask and answer. And so in order to talk about this topic, who am I, we have to talk about everybody's favorite topic, which is shame. And do you know I know it's your favorite topic? Because Brene Brown's TED Talk has amassed over 60 million views. 60 million. I watch a lot of TED Talks. I once watched a five-minute TED Talk on how to wash your hands. It didn't teach me anything other than to shake your hands 12 times and then grab one paper towel. It had a million views. 60 million views and TED Talk numbers is insane. And this topic of shame, it's one that comes up often. It's a topic that I hear discussed all the time. And I believe that shame is one of the most insidious enemies that we face. And it's the reason why when we ask the question, who am I, that I I think we often get it wrong. And so we have to tackle shame today if we're going to better understand what it means to say, who am I, and to get that question right. And so before we really dive into the scriptures, I think we need to define shame, which is what we're going to do. So we're going to define shame. And then we're going to talk about where shame first shows up in the scriptures. And then we're going to talk about the antidote for shame. And so we're going to start with how do we define shame, and then where do we see it in the scriptures, and then what's the antidote to shame. But what I hope we're eventually going to get to is a more robust understanding of who it is that God is calling us to be and who God has already called us that we are, like the song that we just sang talks about. So what is shame? Well, first of all, it's more than a feeling. It's more than just a response to when you mess up. We often think shame is I made a mistake and now I feel shame in light of that, which the reality is you can make a mistake and feel guilt. You don't have to feel shame. Shame is actually more than a feeling. In fact, all of the research on it it says it's a narrative. It's a story about yourself. It's more than just a response to a moment. It's a thing that you say to yourself. And this is how shame shows up in our narratives. We say things like, I'm not enough. There's something really wrong with me, right? I am bad. I'm not inherently good. I am bad or I don't matter. That's the way that shame talks to us. I'm not enough. I'm not good. There's something wrong with me. I don't matter. And what's interesting is I was doing a deep dive. I read The Soul of Shame this week. I watched those Brene Brown videos. I read a bunch of articles on shame. Like, I really wanted to get this right. I don't want to just be some armchair psychologist. So all the counselors in the room hold me accountable if I'm getting this wrong. But what was interesting is all of the research, as I kept reading it, says that shame actually impacts men and women differently. Women, tell me if this sounds familiar to you, shame shows up by having unreal expectations. You better be good looking, you better be fit, you better be smart, you better be successful, you better be able to do it all, and don't you dare break a sweat while doing it. 
That's how women feel shame. I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. And I'm going to strive. And she looks better than me. She looks better than me. She looks better than me. For men, it all comes down to one thing. You better not be what? Weak. That's right. Fellas, you know this. Right? And the the research says this is why so many men disappear into their screens each week. Whether it's video games or a more insidious screen. Parents, I want to protect you in this moment. But men are wanting to escape into a world where they no longer feel weak. They feel powerful. They have imaginary strength, imaginary power, and imaginary control over their lives. This is what shame does to us. You're not enough. And we tell ourselves this, and often we tell ourselves this in subconscious ways. If you're a really astute listener, you'll hear your friends say things, and that self-deprecating humor suddenly you go, wait a minute, do you actually believe that, though, about you? That you're always messing up? Kurt Thompson in his Soul of Shame says that shame, again, is not just a response, but it's much more evil. It's a narrative that tries to compete with the true narrative that God has put into the world. He says humans are unique in our communication and that we tell stories. We know other animals communicate. I'm a zoology major. Animals communicate in very complex ways, but they don't tell stories. We tell stories. That's how I make a living. And the thing about shame is we've gotten really good at telling ourselves the wrong story. But what's more insidious is there's also a force, a power, a being at work telling us that same story as well. All the research then says the fruit of that shame, of telling that story about yourself that's not true, is you end up in secrecy, silence, and judgment. You hide. You don't want to come to the light. You're quiet about your mess-ups, and you are so judgmental. If you've ever met really judgmental people, it's often because they're deeply steeped in shame, and rather than dealing with themselves, they externalize it on others. That's shame. You're not enough. You'll never be enough. So where did it all come from? Let's look at the Bible passage that's going to be on the screens behind me. Genesis 2 is really where we see shame show up and why I think Kurt is right in his book on the soul of shame. Because I believe it is a narrative and I believe it comes from an evil actor on behalf of all of us. So we're going to actually end at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis and then roll into chapter 3. Now, you've got to keep in mind, at the end of chapter 2, everything's good. God has created the world and everything in it, and he's like, this is good, this is good, this is good. And he creates Adam and Eve, he's like, really good. And they're naked in the garden. And that's not meant to just be like, hee hee, they're naked. It's meant to say something about their vulnerability. And we get to the end of chapter 2, and it says, both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. The story keeps going. But now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, God really say you can't eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from the tree, from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it, which, by the way, God didn't say, or you will die. No, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open and now suddenly they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and woman, where are you? 
And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from that tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, that woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from that tree and, and I ate. The Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said, the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. I'm going to stop there and we're going to pray. Lord, help me to clearly teach this story about where shame enters in, but help my story to not end there, but to continue to teach the goodness of our God, the goodness of you to us through these words. Help my words to be beautiful, true, and right. Amen. Do you notice what happens in that story? Adam and Eve are in this good creation, naked and unashamed. Can you imagine? I mean, husbands and wives even, right? You guys enjoy intimacy at a level that hopefully is unparalleled in any other relationship in your life, and yet there's still moments in marriage where you go, I just feel shame here. And here's these two humans, naked and unashamed, no secrecy, no silence, no judgment, no thoughts of I'm unworthy or I'm bad. God has already said to you, you are very good. All that I have is yours. I just ask that you don't do this one thing. It's goodness. It's vulnerability. Yeah, you're not me, but you're you, and you are good, and you get to walk with me and be in relationship with me. And then an enemy comes on the scene and starts telling a different story. He didn't really say that, did he? There's a different story here, lady. Suddenly the woman wants to be more than what God has created her to be. She's not enough. She's not enough. Suddenly God makes her in his own image. She walks with God in the garden and says, I'm not enough. If I had this fruit, I'd be more. God's withholding good things from me. Of course he's withholding it because I'm not him. I don't have enough. And the man is standing there doing the very thing that men are taught they cannot do, which is being weak. And a new story is emerging in the garden with our parents. Not the old story of goodness, worthiness, love. I made you. I love you. I gave you this garden. You can bathe in the river. You can hammock under the tree. I gave you everything. A new story. You're not enough. Something will make you better. And after the fruit snack heard around the world, we see shame's fruit. We see the secrecy. We see the hiding. We see the judgment. They immediately hide. They immediately back away from God. They immediately go into secrecy. And then when God shows up, he's like, the woman you gave me. As if he didn't just enjoy the pleasures of this woman right before that. And what starts in Genesis 3, the shame message of you're not enough. You're not worthy. You're not good. God doesn't want good for you. God doesn't love you. There's more out there outside of God's will. It explodes out of the garden. And we've been battling this enemy of shame ever since. And this story of our worthiness ever since. And it makes you wonder, is there hope for us? I mean, if shame showed up in the garden, and it seems to be winning a lot of battles today, is there hope for us? Is the answer to the question, who am I? We're just the great-great-grandchildren of sinners. And we're sinners. We haven't quite figured out the sin thing. We're going to die in sin, but don't worry, because someday we'll rise again. No. No, because that's not good news. The good news of the cross is not just for tomorrow. It's for today, and we can overcome shame today. We have all that we need in Christ to overcome shame today.
And so what started in the garden can also die in the garden. So how do we do that? If shame is this narrative, if shame is this thing that's creeping and lurking and telling us things like we're not enough, how do we combat it? Well, the first way that we combat it is we have to tell better and truer stories. We have to be better storytellers. I'll tell you how this shows up. Like, I, I'll listen to people, they go, you want to know the gospel? And I'll be like, I'd love to know it. It's, I, I don't know why it is. Every time street evangelists approach a group of people I'm in, they come to me. Would y'all help me? Do I look more sinful than my friends? Yes, someone, okay. That's fine. This has been true my whole life. But I want to indulge because I think this is a really beautiful thing, and so then I want to listen to their gospel presentation. I cannot tell you how many times they start in Genesis 3. Or Romans 6, you're a sinner, you're going to die. I'm like, that's not the gospel. The gospel started in Genesis 1. There's a good God who loves me and made me in his image. And because of my sin, I am separated from God. But praise be to God, because I'm made in his image and he loves me, he came and rescued me. So the gospel actually starts in Genesis 1. And we see even in Genesis 3 when we sin that God is still gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Adam and Eve get clothes. They're not kicked out of the garden naked. God doesn't just... Thin for yourself. He provides for them. He cares for them. And he promises them that what was done to them by the serpent will be avenged by their offspring. This story is not over in Genesis 3. What was started here will die in another garden. And they get to continue to have a relationship with God. He doesn't kick them out. He doesn't say, I'm through with you. He allows them to have children. He allows them to be in relationship with him. And I guarantee you they're with him now. The story is good news. And guess what? It gets better. The same God who walked with him in the garden is the same God who walks into a certain garden in Jerusalem and dies for our sins and then rises again. And that same God who died in the garden now walks with us every day by way of the Holy Spirit. And that same God is making a home for us even now that we get to go home to in Revelation 21. The gospel is good news. The stories we tell, we're not telling good enough. Right? The stories we say to ourselves, we're not good enough and we can't be weak and we aren't worthy, but God is consistently telling us through his word and through his son and through his spirit, what are you guys talking about? I made you good. And because of the work of my son, I've given you my righteousness. Who told you you couldn't be weak? Jesus is going, I am the perfect representation of humanity and I was so weak, I died on a cross. Who told you you couldn't be weak? When you are weak, it's when I am strong. Who told you you weren't worthy? I gave you the best of me. I gave you myself, and I died for you, and I live in you, and I did all of this so I could be with you forever. Who is lying to you? And why do you let their voice be louder than mine? We, like our ancestors, we actually love the story of the enemy more than God's story. And I think maybe it's because God's story is too good to be true. Because who has the audacity to walk around believing that God actually loves them, right? You know what's interesting, though, about shame research is Brene Brown started researching all these people, and she realized there are people that basically fall into two camps. Those who believe that they, or those who live in the sense of being loved and belonging. They, they say, I, I am loved and I do belong. And those who over here say, if I'm being honest, I don't know that I'm loved and I don't know that I belong. And she kind of put these people in two categories. And she said, you know, this is pretty big. So what makes these people able to sit in the fact that they believe they are loved and they believe they belong. Like, what's the secret ingredient to these people? Was it their upbringing? Was it a certain socioeconomic status? Like, did something happen to them? Was it something that didn't happen to them? Like, what makes people feel like, yeah, I'm loved and I belong? You know what's interesting? 
It's just that they feel worthy of it. That's all she found. These people say, I'm not worthy to be loved. I'm not worthy to belong. And these people say, well, of course I'm worthy to be loved. Of course I'm worthy to belong. We're all humans. How can someone be more worthy of love and belonging? What if we just walked around believing we were worthy to be loved because God already said it? Let me tell you a better story of who you are. You are a child of God. You are. And you have been saved. You have been chosen. You have been sanctified. You have been washed. And you get to go home with him someday. And even now today, you get to partner now with him in his work. This is the message I will be telling for the rest of my life. You are worthy of love. Would you just receive it? It already exists. And shame comes along and it destroys our creativity and it destroys our work. And the enemy thwarts our work with God and he tells us we're unworthy. And God is sitting here going, I am screaming at you that I love you. Do we have the audacity and the courage to actually believe God? You know he can't lie, right? This is crazy. He can't lie. He's saying, you know, I can't lie, and all the enemy does is lie. And he's saying to you, you're unworthy. I can't lie, and I'm saying you're worthy. This isn't a riddle. Why don't you believe me? Why don't you trust me? We have to tell better stories. We have to go around and we have to rehearse those stories. We have to tell those stories to each other. The sad reality is, is part of the reason why we don't believe God is because most of the stories we believe about ourselves are subconscious. So we have to be able to rehearse these stories out loud and to each other and say to each other, you know God loves you, right? You know God loves you, right? When people say, oh, I'm a disappointment, I'm a failure, I'm this, you go, whoa, 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 you make poor choices, but you are not a disappointment. You are not a failure. You mess up you're still worthy of love and belonging in addition to telling better stories the other way that we combat shame is through practicing vulnerability you already knew that if you've learned shame you know that v word we all hate it but all the shame research says if you want to break free from the secrecy the silence the judgment you have to be vulnerable which is just to say you have to be willing to expose your true self to others in order to be truly loved that's it Unless you think that I'm just coming up with some psychobabble, the Bible actually talks about this. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. They don't have it together as much as the other churches, I'll just tell you. Like, they make a lot of decisions that you and I would go, I don't know I'd do that. And Paul is begging them to shape up a little bit in light of who Christ is. But he says to them, because they don't think he's that great. Part of Corinthians' problem is they're like, Paul, you're not that impressive. And he goes, yeah, I know. And this is what he says to them. He says, he says to them, my grace is sufficient for you. This is, this is Jesus talking to Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, this is now Paul telling you, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasures in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. When I am weak, that's when I am strong. It's so counterintuitive though, isn't it? Right? And yet it's the example Paul sets for us that I believe he got from Jesus. Jesus himself humbles himself to the point of death. He hangs naked on the cross. Y'all ever think about the fact that he was naked? Like I know we put the towel up because we're sensible people and that's good. But how vulnerable he goes back to the garden where our ancestors were naked and goes, I'm going to go all the way back there and redeem what we lost. And he's in a Roman world as a circumcised man hanging naked 
on a cross on behalf of us. He was weak enough to die for us. And then after he dies and he resurrects and he ascends, somehow we come up with the idea we're meant to be super Christians. Yeah, Jesus was weak. Yeah, Paul was weak. But me? I just need me, my Bible, and my bootstraps. I'm good. Hey, you need help? No, no, I'm good. I remember the first week at Watermark when I was, I was young and dumb. Nothing's changed. I just got older. And I remember I was holding a ton of books, and I was standing at the elevator, and I was, like, trying to, like, pick my foot up to hit the button. And a guy on staff walks up, and he goes, do you need some help? And I literally said, no. And he was like, looks like you need help. And he just hit the button and kept going. I was like, <laughs> And then I got in the elevator and was like, that's not a good first impression, I don't think. So I emailed him. I said, hey, I, that was weird. I don't know why. I said, no. And he's like, okay. Have a good day, weirdo. But we do that. We don't want help. We don't want to be weak. And yet the scriptures practically scream at us, you're meant to need one another in addition to the Lord. So how do we practice this vulnerability? If the, the antidote to shame is vulnerability, it's being willing to be honest about who we really are then we have to have the courage to be imperfect. You have to be willing to say, yeah, I'm not great at that. If I'm being honest, I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling right now, and I could use some help. We have to have courage to be imperfect. We have to have the compassion to be kind to ourselves and others. The thing about perfect people is they don't need compassion. And so we go around masquerading like we're perfect, and then when we mess up, we can't give ourselves compassion. I can't tell you how often as a pastor I listen to people talking about themselves, and I just go, hey, I just need you to know, if someone else said the things about you that you just said about you, I would rebuke them. I would say, don't talk about my friend like that. So now I'm going to rebuke you. No, but we have to learn to be compassionate. We have to connect in meaningful ways to each other where we're honest about who we are. And because we're Christians, we have to go first. We have to say, I love you first. We have to be willing to risk in relationship with no guarantee of it's going to come back. And it's going to blow up in our faces. There's this really funny scene in Friends where Ross runs to the airport because he wants to tell Emily before she gets on the plane that he loves her. And he looks at her and he goes, I love you. And she goes, thank you. And then she gets on the plane. And so his sister Monica was the one that had sent him there. I hate the show Friends. Please don't think this is an endorsement of that show. I hate it. You can ask all my friends. But he runs back to Monica and he's like, he goes, he goes, thank you. That's what he said. And she goes, you're so welcome. She goes, he goes, no. I said, I love you. She said, thank you. And then Monica was like, ugh. But it might have been the only good thing Ross did in all 50 seasons of that show, right? We have to be willing to risk. And we have to be willing to say, me too, when someone shares that they're broken. And we have to be willing to tell people about our fears and our failures. In other words, we boast and our weaknesses, like Paul. And so I'll go first. My name is Nika. I have a new life in Christ, and I have a very, very high need for control. Uh, but I've perfected it as if it's a part of my humor and my shtick. So, for example, if you go on a vacation with me, I rent the car, always. And I will tell you it's because I'm car sick, but the reality is because I don't trust you to be better at it than me. I don't think you will protect me the way I will protect you. I recently convinced Robin and Alex to go rock climbing with me. I am not afraid of heights. I have been skydiving five times. You can ask them. I walk way too close to the edge. I love climbing up on things, but I learned when I'm dangling from 60 feet in the air, I do not trust them to hold the rope. 
I do not. And the other day, Alex was taking too long to lower me, and I looked over my shoulder. I go, could you hurry up, Mima? And she did not hurry. And when I got to the ground, I was angry. Like I, and I, I talked to her as if this was her problem, as if it wasn't my problem that I have trust issues, as if my best friend wouldn't die for me the same way I would die for her. But it gets more insidious than just rock climbing and car rentals. It works like this in conversations. Like I've mastered the art of disclosure without vulnerability. So I'll show you how it works. My father walked out on me on my first birthday. And everybody in the room goes, oh, so vulnerable. Now I don't care who knows that. What I don't want you to know, though, is because he did that, I am scared to tell you vulnerable things about me because I think you will use it to hurt me. Because people leave. And I have a fear of abandonment. And if I give you too much power, I'll get hurt. And I promised myself when I was a kid, I'm not going to let people hurt me. So I have a high need for control in conversations. I do not share what I don't want to share. So you might be vulnerable, and I will look back at you, and I'll go, man, thank you so much. But I will not say me too. I'm working on it, though. I'm working on it. I remember where I was when I contributed to the 60 million views of Brene Brown's video. I still remember where I was. I was in Garland, Texas, at my kitchen table, watching the video because Alex insisted I watch it. And I remember getting 15 minutes into that 20-minute video, and I wept. I was like, I want to be known and loved, but if it requires vulnerability, I don't know that I have the courage to do that. And, whew. And I set out from that moment saying, if that's what it requires, though, if, that what it mean, if that's what it means to be truly human, then the same girl who can jump out of airplanes and rock climb and all of that, she can find a way to be honest about her shortcomings. But I will be the first to tell it is hard. It is, I, I also back up and hide and I'm secretive and I'm judgmental because shame is a very powerful story, which is why we have to practice vulnerability. How do we combat shame? We tell better stories. We practice vulnerability. And the last way that we combat shame is by practicing joy and gratitude which some of you are like, that's weird. That doesn't compute. Like shame, joy. You didn't expect me to say that, but the truth is all the research, Kurt, Bra- Kurt Thompson's book, Brene Brown's book, all the stuff that I was reading, it talks about the role that joy and gratitude play in our healing from shame. And joy, according to Brene, is the most vulnerable emotion. It's the most vulnerable emotion. I did not expect that. And she says, because if you choose to experience joy, you will probably get hurt. And we tend to tell ourselves joy is a luxury for those who are healed and peaceful, but for the rest of us mortals, we had better not feel joy because it will get snatched from us so fast and you will feel stupid forever having felt it. That's why it's so vulnerable. You're going to say to yourself, the moment you feel joy and it gets snatched away, you're going to go, see, I know I can't have nice things. Why did I let my guard down? And yet, just look at what the Bible says about joy. It talks about Jesus wants our joy to be complete. It talks about how we're commanded often to be joyful, that we can have joy in affliction, which I think is bananas. It talks about how joy is at God's right hand forevermore. We learn that it's a fruit of the spirit of those who walk with Christ, have joy in their life. And we believe that though there is mourning and suffering now, joy comes in the morning. It's a posture that allows us to participate now in what we will have in full later. It's an invasion of heaven. Joy is so powerful. So when you have a moment of intense happiness, just sit in it, receive it, and then follow with gratitude for those who created it, and of course to God because he's the one that ultimately gave it to you. 
and the shame monster is going to come in, right? The shame, you're going to have a moment of joy, and the shame monster is going to come in and go, this moment's fleeting. You're not worthy of it. If all these people who you're laughing with knew who you really were, you, they wouldn't be laughing with you. They'd be laughing at you. And shame's going to come in, and you just need to go, hey, I got this one, actually. If you could go sit over there, we'll tangle later. I'm going to enjoy this moment, shame. Go sit over there. The gospel says God is in the business of dispensing joy. When we encounter it, we should receive this gift from God because he's in the business of spoiling his kids. Why are we so surprised when God, in his infinite goodness, gives us good gifts? We get gifts from God and we just go, are you sure this is for me? Are, are you sure this is for me? Maybe the hardest thing in life is not walking through suffering. It's actually walking through abundant gifts that we don't deserve. I wrestled with this for years. I lived with John and Diane Hawkins. They were so kind to me. And I would always be like, what's their angle? What do they want in return? And by expressing vulnerability and being bathed in their love and beginning to trust, I began to learn, no, they just give good gifts, which is like the Lord, so I should receive gifts from him. But it's their most generous gifts that are hardest for me to receive. Hey, we got you Dr. Pepper in the fridge. Well, of course you did. That was $5. Hey, you can live with us rent-free for five years. What do you want me to do for that? Nothing. Mm. What do you want? Nothing. Mm. But you learn to just receive because God's in the business of good giving good gifts. When you experience joy, drink of it. Have the audacity to be the person who's enjoying the moment and say to yourself, I'm worthy of this. God gives good gifts, even the mess-ups. I think of my nieces and nephew. They, my nephew, I've told you all this story before, but there was a time he got in trouble at school, and he never does. He's the good kid, um, which is so good because his sisters are the smart kid. And I'm like, whatever. They're all smart. But he's really good. He's really sweet. He's the sweetest boy I've ever met. So he got in trouble one day. And so he had to come home from, from school, and he had to get a note signed by his mom. And, of course, he felt shame. And so he wrote mom on the note and gave it back to his teacher. And so his teacher was like, Nixon, did your mother sign this? And he was like, and thankfully, he goes, she didn't. And she goes, okay, buddy, I'm going to give you one more chance. Go home and have your mom sign it. I bet she'll be understanding. And he goes, okay. And so teacher calls Ashley just say, hey, look, here's what happened. He's got a chance to do the right thing. I want him to tell you. So I, so I had come to town this day. And she's like, hey, Nikes, here's what's going on. If Nixon doesn't give me the note, he can't play with you. I mean, he's going to have a consequence. And I'm just praying, like, buddy, do the right thing. Like, buddy, do the right thing. I just want to play with you. And so he comes home from school, and I'm like, I think I'm more anxious than him. Like, I'm just like, oh, Lord, please, please just give this little boy courage. He's five years old. How can he bear up under this? This is too great, Lord. And, and Ashley goes, hey, Bubba, is there anything you need to tell me? And he goes, yeah. And he opens his folder, and he hands his mom the note, and then he runs to his bedroom and covers himself in a blanket. Oh, it makes me want to cry. And so Ashley goes, Bubba, come here. It's okay. We make mistakes. It's okay. And I just remember in that moment, I'd already committed. I was playing him no matter what. I was going to play with I was like, I don't care. You can't make me as an aunt not play with my nephew. But I realized in that moment for him, getting to be restored to relationship with me was a reminder to him that shame doesn't get the final word here. You're loved, and you made a mistake, and it's okay. It's okay. We know who you are, Nixon. 
But shame is a liar, and it's active, and it destroys our sense of worth. And when it's left to do its work, it will destroy you, your family, and your community. I am not being too grandiose here. I'm not over-exaggerating. I have seen so many relationships and marriages fail because of shame. Because we choose to numb, we choose to hide, we choose to lie. We try to escape this world, to go find a world where we feel good about ourselves. And we break the relationships in this world. And we find out because of shame what the scriptures mean when it says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And we see it. In Genesis 3, we see it. There's good news. There's good news. Shame doesn't have to have the final word. I started by saying I want us to ask and answer the question, who am I? And we can only do that by addressing shame. But since we've done that, let's ask and answer this question, who am I? So here we are. Who are you? You are deeply loved by God. Worthy of his love, worthy to belong, worthy to be a part of his family in this community. You are deeply loved by God. And if the voice in your head right now is saying, yeah, but no, no, no. You are worthy of love. You are worthy of belonging. Now, I'm not saying sin isn't a big deal. We need to work on that stuff. But do not let it for a second tell you you do not belong to God. Who are you? Fellas, you're allowed to be weak. In fact, you're supposed to be. And ladies, you're allowed to be imperfect. In fact, you're supposed to be. And we are allowed to fail. And the good news is that when we are weak and vulnerable, you are actually at your strongest moment because that's when God's strength and power takes over to supply what you need. Weakness is our strength. Vulnerability is our strength. Who are you? You are a creature created for deep, abiding joy. And you're worthy of joy. You're headed for joy everlasting. So when it invades this world, you are welcome to sit in it and thank God for it. And we all need a little bit more of it, I think, in this world. Who are you? You're enough. You are worthy, and you've been made good by the work of Christ on your behalf. So here's my plea to us. Would we believe what God says? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for this reminder of the insidiousness of shame. But what a gift that you point out our enemy to us. And you point out how it works so that we can combat it. And what a gift to us that we don't combat it on our own and through our bootstraps or by willing it. But instead we just combat it by falling on our knees saying, help. I need you. And we combat it by telling better stories to ourselves and to each other. And by exposing our weakest and most vulnerable parts to each other and hearing me too. It's good news that you want us to experience joy. Would you allow us, Lord? It's good news that we're worthy of being loved. Would you help us to walk in that? Bless my friends this morning. Help us to believe you more than we believe the enemy. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.